the video and photography that we do from satellites right now, these things often have to be interpreted by humans. You can use a machine to interpret them, but there's a pretty quick limit you're gonna to get to. With hyperspectral, if we can detect the chemistry of what is in a pixel, we can identify it. We can start linking that to actions. A picture tells you about what, what the shape is. If you're a, an expert or a specialist, you can make some pretty great inferences about the state because you're an expert. But otherwise, you can't feed that into a computer. You can't use that to create actionable intelligence. You need the chemistry. We're standing by. Entry interface minus five minutes. So you know those nights, those pitch black nights, when you look up into space, break out a telescope and gaze at the stars? You pinpoint one of them and you wonder what it's called, how far away it is, how large, how young or old. Space is a faraway mystery, but we've invented telescopes to get a closer look into the darkness. Now imagine the flip side of this story. You're actually up in space looking down on Earth, and Earth is composed of all types of mysterious objects. If you had a telescope, you could get a closer look. So that story is actually what Wyvern does. And today's guest is Chris Robson, who's the CEO and founder of Wyvern. All right, let's jump in and take a listen. Hey, thanks, Chris, for uh, coming on to the New Space Podcast. Thanks, John. Excited to be here. Yeah, all right. So Wyvern, really cool company. I know you guys are based up in Canada, so that's a cool angle to talk about here as well today. But first, I just wanted to ask you, Chris, to give a brief overview of, of your company, of Wyvern, and why you started it and what you guys do different in the EO market. For sure. So what Wyvern does, we take high-resolution pictures of Earth from space in the hyperspectral regime. And what we do is we replace the need to send people into the field to survey natural resources. So the way that we differentiate ourselves from other companies is the resolution of our hyperspectral imagery, which is accomplished through our proprietary technology called deployable optics. Essentially, it allows us to get a much higher resolution from a much smaller platform than is otherwise possible without having a much larger satellite bus in a much larger telescope. So we're primarily a data company. We supply hyperspectral imagery data. We're going to be launching our first satellites in 2023, which is the first launch is coming up quick in April. And we've been around for about almost five years now, actually. It's, it'll be five years in March. So we started off in 2018. I had taken a look at hyperspectral before. And one of the things that I realized at the time is that with existing satellite technology, there wasn't really a good way to compete in the EO industry with a hyperspectral imager unless you solve the problem around aperture and satellite buses. Like it was already heading towards a commoditized economy. And I figured it would only be a matter of time. And anyway, so I, I discounted that for a little bit. And eventually I started speaking to my now co-founder, Kristen Cote. She was telling me about this uh, research she wanted to do in deployable optics, and she described it to me. And that's when we sort of put two and two together and realized, hey, this could build a really great defensible business model. Let's talk to some customers, see if this is what they need. We started doing that. We, we started the company shortly after. The first thing we did is we spoke to something like 50 potential customers just to figure out what their needs were, where they weren't being served, some of the weaknesses in the industry. And uh, yeah, it's been a heck of a road from there. So how did you guys come up with the idea of the unfolding camera, right? I've seen videos where it looks like both your satellite unfolds and then the camera protrudes after it's in space. So what's going on there? Yeah, so with a typical telescope, you build the whole thing on the ground and we're using a reflective telescope design. The majority of it is done with mirrors. 
And so there's a primary mirror, there's a secondary mirror. There's more optical elements in there that I'm describing, but for the sake of simplicity, those are the major parts of the technology. So anyway, traditionally what you do is you build the whole telescope on the ground, you set it into space, the aperture limits, the resolution you can get, and the higher the resolution, the bigger the telescope, and therefore the bigger the bus that you have to fly. That's been how it's been done for the longest time. So the concept of the deployable optics, that's Kristen's idea. That's that's something that she came up with. Not that it's unique to Wyvern alone. Deployable optics as a concept has been around for a long time. And I mean, you just have to look at the James Webb Space Telescope to see that. So what the concept is, is we take a large telescope and we fold it up into a small size. So we do that by cutting the primary mirror up into small segments. And we also have a secondary mirror that we fold up against the satellite. So it's deployed on a boom. And once it's out there, we deploy the secondary, we deploy the primary, then we correct each of the mirrors on the nano to micrometer scale in order to get a really great image. So how many satellites, if you look at your plan for a constellation, how many satellites do you plan to put up in space and over how many years? A minimum of 27. And we figure we needed that because we needed to get daily images. The realistic answer is probably a lot more than 27. It's probably in the hundreds. Wow, okay. We don't know exactly how many yet. It's going to depend on a lot of input from customers from our first satellites launching this year. Are you looking at the entire planet or are you looking at just certain zones? Eventually, we want to do the entire planet. Like We'd like to be able to do a daily image anywhere on Earth. For the first three satellites, it's largely focused on North America and the Northern Hemisphere. And the plan is to be able to do that at least every three days is the plan. Got it. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about resolution? Because that's come up in my conversations on the podcast where there's obviously different types of imagery. There's RF, there's spectral, there's um, SAR, there's even now video as well as still photographs. So in your domain, looking at hyperspectral imagery, what are the, let's just call it overall quality issues that type of imagery faces? And then how are you specifically addressing that? So, I mean... That's a that's a big question. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's okay. It's a it's a good question. Well, let's talk about hyperspectral imaging from yeah, okay. drone and airplane first, because like there, there's not really a lot of hyperspectral imaging in space. And some of the biggest issues we see from drone and aerial is radiometric quality and signal to noise ratio. You know, a great example, like we we've got a drone. We do product demonstrations with customers using the drone. And I until we actually had done an imaging campaign with a drone, I had no idea how difficult it was to make those images overlap with each other into a coherent radiometrically correct picture. And it's important for imagery in, in general, for multispectral imagery, for optical imagery, but for hyperspectral imagery, it's especially important because you're taking hyperspectral imagery for the radiometric qualities of the, of the picture. You're taking it to see all these different colors. They need to be radiometrically correct. And eventually you probably want to do machine learning and AI on though the lack of signal, the lack of, uh, of radiometric correctness across the whole image that impacts your ability to do that. You can do indices like you do a multispectral, but you can't really do AI. So in that concept, how do you define hyper? What makes it hyperspectral versus some other type of spectral? <laughs> oh man, I'm going to get roasted no matter what answer I give you. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, not, not by you, of course, but like, there's <laughs> just so many people have different definitions. Yeah. The one that I, I stick with and the one that I remember reading about in school was the technical definition of hyperspectral is a 
spectrogram that takes a takes an image as opposed to a sample point that does contiguous bands. Whereas multispectral, you're doing non-contiguous bands. So for example, you could have a band that goes from 450 to 550, and then the next going from 600 to 650. That's multispectral. Hyperspectral would just be continuous sampling of the bands with no breaks in between. Um, some people say it's over 100. Some people say it's over like 50. I think it's that definition to me. So let's say you don't skip those gaps in the band. Like you said, that's multispectral. What are you going for? What are you trying to see that's better than if you went for a lesser, like a less sophisticated approach to it? You're trying to see the spectrographic signal for every pixel. Every Everything in the light has a unique signature. You want to measure that signature very, very finely. And that, that's why hyperspectral imagers have hundreds of bands. It's so that we can actually sample that signature. If we can see that signature, we can tell what kind of chemicals or elements or or what what's going on in a pixel that you just can't see with your eyes. Like you can see the nutrient concentration in soil. You can see different elements. You can see methane. You can see carbon dioxide. There's just a ton of things that you, you can see as a result of that that you can't see with multispectral. And it comes down to how many samples you're taking in the light spectrum that you just can't do with multispectral. But you need to do it continuously. Yeah, I liked how you described it on your website that you're looking to understand the chemistry of an image. I thought that was really cool because RF is looking to geolocate a, an activity that's a human activity associated with some type of radio signal and you detect it and you could geolocate it. Photography and video are looking primarily at what the human eye can see. They could just see it more often and in places where the human eye can't can easily get to. But spectral imagery and then especially hyperspectral imagery you're looking for something different you're looking almost like at the health of a crop versus where that crop is right can you explain why the chemistry in a bit image is important what do you mean by that and why would you want to look at the chemistry of an image for sure so to your point video video and photography that we do from satellites right now these things often have to be interpreted by humans you can't really use them. You can use a machine to interpret them, but there's a pretty quick limit you're going to get to. For example, if you're using multispectral in farming, you're probably going to use an index called NDVI. That's going to tell you the how relatively how how healthy your field might be compared to other parts of your field, but it doesn't give you an absolute measurement. It doesn't give you a direct answer. If your entire field is really green, but there's one part that's even a little bit greener, the multispectral Im imager is going to, the NDVI is still going to tell you the same relative as it would be if if it was yellow and there was a part that was just a little bit greener. Anyway, with hyperspectral, if we can detect the chemistry of what is in a pixel, if we can identify it, we can start linking this to things like, for example, the percent the percentage of nitrogen in a plot of soil. We can start linking that to actions. You can take that data and you can say, okay, I've got this giant farm. This is what the percentage of nutrients are in my soil. This is how much I need to buy for this growing season to replenish the soil. If you start looking at things like water moisture, if you connect that to your weather forecasting, you can start doing things like, when should I do it? Because when you do it, it really matters in farming. If you advance this over to, to, mineral, to mining, you can start doing like mineral exploration. You can say, hey, this is where this particular mineral node is. You can start looking at methane and oil and gas, you can detect it finally. Being able to identify and quantify the chemical or the chemical process of what's going on in a pixel tells you about the state of what you're looking at. 
a picture tells you about what what the shape is. It generally, if you're a, an expert or a specialist, you can make some pretty great inferences about the state because you're an expert. But otherwise, you can't feed that into a computer. You can't use that to create actionable intelligence. You need the chemistry. That's really cool. It seems like, especially with issues like crop health or chemicals in the environment, that's increasingly something that we care about. The chemical makeup, the chemical byproduct of, let's say, let's just stick with the ag for now. Like what's, what's the difference between saying, Hey, it's about the second week of June is when I normally apply something or water to raise my water level to a certain degree on my crops to now I can take more specific action given the data that I'm seeing through a company like Wyvern. Well, the impact is either you're saving money through efficiency or you're producing more because you're taking the right action at the right time. You see increases in crop yield. You see less spending on fertilizer and water. And it's more important than ever today, especially with water crisis is going on in places like the Midwest United States, where there's a lot of farming. To your point about being able to see things in the environment that might affect us, there's a lot of things that you and I probably wouldn't know if we looked at a plot of land. Like We might not know if there's lead in the soil or if there is some other thing that's going to complicate some sort of activity we're trying to do there or the local environment. And that's that's also really important to our daily activities and to our local ecosystems. So when you're looking at, let's say, through a hyperspectral lens, you're looking at lead, you're looking at nitrogen, you're looking at water, you're looking at other things. There's this concept of a, like a hyperspectral fingerprint. Do those things have different spectral fingerprints? So they have different colors, different intensities. Can you say... If I look at it with a naked eye, I'm like, okay, that's lead because it's dark gray and it's sitting there right into it's exposed, but you could look at it and identify it through a completely different set of information, right? So quick caveat, I actually don't, I, I don't know hundred percent if that lead thing is, is accurate. Oh, okay. All right. I've never seen a paper <laughs> on that. I'm making a pretty big assumption there. Just as a caveat, I don't know that for sure, but you know, to answer your question, a great example, you and I could probably take a look at a farmer's field like in the middle of the season and see some parts that are yellow and some parts that are green, and we can figure out pretty well what's going on. If you were to look at a spectral signature, you would see a unique shape to the signature, and this would be comprised of the color, the shape of the signal, the intensity of the light. And that would be able to do things like identify what chemical it is. Yeah, that's cool. So that's a way of looking at the world that most of us don't even know that we have the ability to do that. We only really understand what we can see with our own eyes, right? There's so many different ways to look at the world. A hundred percent. Yeah. So looking at who would be using your data, I know that you're you're about to launch this year, but you yeah. certainly have been talking to some early adopters of your technology, of your data. What are they looking to solve? Can you talk me through some use cases, some applications that you're looking forward to bringing to market once your satellites are up? For sure. So a great example of like, we'll start with agriculture since we've been talking about that so far. Being able to create variable rate fertilizer maps, doing the same thing for herbicides, so being able to identify a weed and being able to say, okay, just spray here. Being able to identify the amount of water moisture that's in soil. One potential use case that we're examining is being able to quantify how much carbon has been sequestered over the course of a growing season. That's becoming increasingly important. Looking at the different stresses that are that a plant might be going under and identifying what's causing that. So for example, there's fungus, there's pests, there's diseases, there's lack of water. These things, being able to identify these hyperspectral imager, it just allows a farmer to get an idea of what's going on with their crop that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do unless you circumvent your field and walk between the rows every single day. 
considering the, the size of a far, the average farm in Canada, that's, that's a pretty big prospect. Last I checked, it was like 4.5 square kilometers. Like that's, that's insanely large. Yeah. If we're talking about mining, it's mostly mineral exploration. When it comes to the pre-mine site, it's mineral exploration. In the middle of the mining phase, it's monitoring mine sites, whether it's chemical runoff, environmental damage, whether it's monitoring the border of the lease, potentially being able to do things like inventorying stockpiles or post-mining, it's environmental remediation. That, that's also shared with other other things, that other industries like in the oil and gas sector. For oil and gas, it's largely been about emissions monitoring or leak detection. With forestry, it's been about monitoring forestry health and detecting disease. There's a really great paper about being able to detect pine beetle early on before you can see the tree browning, which is great because it can give you a you know, pretty big lead on pine beetle. That's that's a really damaging crop. There's forest fire detection, natural disaster monitoring. There's a ton of military applications. We, we haven't honestly been exploring a lot of them yet, but that's probably one of the biggest. I mean, military is the biggest customer for EO data. I think I've covered the majority of them. And to be honest, there's anything that involves a human enterprise on land or in a remote area, then you could probably do something with it with, with EO and with hyperspectral imagery. Cool. So if you're looking across all those markets that you just walked through, seems like some of the common problems that they're trying to solve are, are like early access, like getting a earlier read on a problem. So let's say pine beetle, right? Probably by the time it's visible to the naked eye, it, I would imagine it's it's pretty late in the game to address it. It's already yeah. taken root. But if you could sense it, sense the presence of pine beetle via satellite, earlier than you could, then there's a chance to address it, right? So is that the case? And are there other things like that sort of like, I would call like a common problems that people are looking to solve through EO data, hyperspectral imagery data? There's definitely, so early, early detection is definitely one thing. Replacing the need to send people into the field to to actually take measurements is another thing. And the, th the third thing is being able to take measurements of their operations that is holistic, something across the entirety of their their site. Th those are really the the three things that we found. Yeah, that's kind of the use case for satellite in general, right? Something that's wide, something that is hard to detect or takes a lot of time to detect. So when you're looking at the marketplace, where do you see the opening in the market? Where do you see where you have good differentiation? Well, when we started, it was just hyperspectral imagery. It's obviously changed a lot since then. There's a lot of new entrants in the market. The differentiation that we have with, with other hyperspectral imagery companies is the resolution that we can achieve. I haven't seen another hyperspectral company that says they can go below five meters in the visible, the near infrared, or the shortwave infrared. It's something that we can do as a result of our optics. They, the, the best EO satellite up there, like at least commercial EO satellite, is, is still Worldview 3 in terms of resolution and spectral range. We want to be able to match that resolution, but with hyperspectral. That's the plan. So other companies are talking about five meter hyperspectral and invisible near infrared. We're talking about doing one meter or two meter. Yeah. So then when you go from, let's say five meter to one or two meter, can you give me an example of the difference that that makes to be able to go to the degree that you go to? If you're using traditional satellite technology, the biggest difference is the size of the telescope. And it's purely the diffraction limit that's defined by physics. So I'm pretty sure World Loop 3 has a 1.2 meter diameter telescope. Which is, which is massive to put on a rocket. It's massive to just put together in a lab. And the, the satellite bus that you add on top of it is, it's going to be over-designed. It's going to be redundant. It's going to be something that you do not want to fail in space because you're not going to be able to fix it. 
what happened to worldview four is a classic example of like what would happen, like the, the impact of losing a satellite like that has on a company. So that's the thing that needs to happen to make that happen. We get around that by deploying the optics out. So we can do it on a much smaller satellite bus, something the size of a, a cube satellite or an ESPA class satellite. Got it. Cool. Okay. So can you talk to me about 2023 and how the year is going to unfold? You say you're, you're, you have two launches on schedule. Then when will your data be operational and usable by a client base? The plan is to have it within two months. Okay. Got it. Space is hard though. So it could be a little bit longer than that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. You got to put the satellites up there. You got to make the connection, right? Deploy everything and then see if you're getting the data that you need. And then, yeah, I know it takes a couple of months. So, but that's exciting when you're going to see your vision come to life. So I imagine you're looking forward to that. Definitely. I'm looking forward to that. We're, yeah, so we're, we're 2023 looks like getting the satellites up, getting the data ready to go for customers, and then starting to fulfill some of the contracts we have and seeing what customers think of the data. These three satellites are definitely a, a proof of, like, these are definitely a minimum viable product. They're, they're there so that we can learn exactly what a customer needs. These first three satellites, they won't have our deployable optics on them. They will have a hyperspectral imager on them. Our deployable optics demonstration is going to be going up in, in 2024. Once we have these two things, we have an idea of what it is that customers need the most from hyperspectral. Because frankly, like I'm not 100% sure that spatial resolution is what they need. They, they might just need more SNR, something that our deployable optics also provide. From there, once we, once we do that, once we demo it in space, that is going to help us decide how best to scale up in the following years. Got it. Cool. So what's going on in Alberta locally, but maybe in Canada more broadly with the space workforce and Canadian initiatives to commercialize space? Because it it seems like there's there's this global phenomenon going on. I just want to hear like, what's it like there in Canada? What are the major partners and initiatives that you're part of? And what do the what are like the young innovators and tech workforce? What do they think about companies like like Wyvern and getting a chance to do really cool stuff? So a thing to know about Alberta is that historically Alberta's oil and gas, its cows and, and agriculture, <laughs> and its forestry. <laughs> and so when I started engineering, like that was my prospects as a young mechanical engineer was go and work for an oil and gas company. So yeah. my first year of an internship, this was 2011, I saw this last space shuttle launch. And at that point I said, what, screw this, I'm going to work in the space industry. That's going to be my career. Then I faced the problem that every young Albertan faced, which is there's no space industry in Alberta. There's just no, there was just nowhere for me to go. The closest thing would have been some of the university programs did have space research, but like that, it was pretty far removed from building and launching a spacecraft. About a year in after that, I did find a group at the University of Alberta called Alberta Sat One. They were competing at the time in something called the Canadian CubeSat Challenge. And a lot of the folks there were about to graduate. I joined, I became the project manager. And when I was the project manager, one of the visions I set there is, okay, we want to build a space industry in Alberta. We're going to do that by building and launching our own university satellite. We're going to create a program at the university so that young students can learn how to build, how to do this and have the confidence to either go and start space companies or go and join other space companies in Canada. And we're going to spin a company off one day that is going to focus on, on space and it's going to be in Alberta. What the goal was is we wanted to build a space industry here because I, I think that's that's the future of a lot of industry. And I think Alberta has a lot of unique characteristics in, in the people that work here that fit with the space industry. 
And I also wanted to give everybody, including myself, the chance to live and work in Alberta and also do what they love. Because the other option was go to New Zealand or go to Europe. We couldn't really go to the United States because we had to have a citizenship to do that in order to work in the space industry. So there's just either a massive brain drain or people had to choose other industries that are less exciting. So anyway, that's how it got started in Alberta. Right now, there's Wyvern. There's a There are a couple other companies in Alberta that are working on space products. There's another major space company in Edmonton called Space Engine Systems that's working on a single stage to orbit engine. There's at least one other startup that I know of in Alberta. But there's also these massive CubeSat programs that uh, the massive one is at the University of Alberta. There's another one at the University of Calgary that's producing a lot of these young people. And I'm hoping what's going to happen, they're they're coming to intern with Wyvern. I'm hoping that they'll either stay with Wyvern as we grow or they'll go off and build their own space companies and they'll stay in Alberta. The larger Canadian ecosystem, I see a lot of space companies starting, but it still doesn't seem to me to be a huge priority for the Canadian government. Just I, it, sorry, I should I should actually balance that a little bit like they've definitely done some important things but it just still doesn't seem like building a space industry is their major priority which i think is a mistake because i think space is great for nations that are huge with very small populations because you can automate a lot of things you can also view your entire nation it's especially great for canada because we're frontiers folk we work in cold environments we work in hostile environments and we're uniquely suited for a future space workforce there's just a ton of things that would be good about the space industry for canada that being said, again, still seeing a lot of space startups. There's the there's the regular suspects like Kepler and GHGSat. Both are doing incredibly well. It's definitely not the same that it is in the United States, though. I will also say that the investor ecosystem for space in, in Canada, it's, I don't think it really has caught up to the United States yet. We're working on that, though. Got it. So you said when you first started answering the question that you see space as the future of several industries, or I don't know if you said every or many industries. What do you mean by that? Well, so one of the things that Elon Musk loves to talk about, and one of the reasons why I started SpaceX is because humans need to become a multi-planetary species. Personally, I think that life needs to become multi-planetary because ecosystems support humans. But regardless, if you follow that thesis along that humans need to become multi-planetary, it also follows that we need to bring everything with us because that's that's exactly how it, how it works when humans start to, to settle new areas. Space in particular, because there's not really much there. We want to become a multi-planetary species. We've got to move our industry. We've got to move some industri- industrialization into space. We've got to have mining in space. We've got to have production in space. And that, that's got to include food. That's got to include energy. It's got to include the whole works. We've got to start living in space. And I think that as a result of doing that, we're going to discover how advantageous it is to do these things in space instead of on Earth. I mean, it, it'd be really great if... Instead of polluting Earth, we we did stuff in space. Not to say that space wouldn't be polluted, but I mean, it is already a radiation-filled hellscape. So <laughs> I, the impact of polluting space is is probably zero, especially since I, and I'm not an astrophysicist, but I imagine that a lot of that pollution would be dissociated into their individual atoms because of cosmic radiation and things like that. Again, take that with a grain of salt. Anyway, I think it's really important. I think that's where a lot of our economy is going to be in the future. Yeah, I know. I've been talking to several different people on this podcast, mining in space. There's obviously manufacturing moving to space. There's maybe the entire or a good chunk of the telecom infrastructure moving into space for a lot of reasons. Like telecom is good to move to space because that is a different line of sight. 
issue. You don't have to build telephone poles or cell towers or run cable on the ground or run cable under the ocean. And it can be solar powered, not plugged into the earthbound grid. So there's a lot of advantages, obviously, to bring different industries and different aspects of humanity into space. But it's not going to happen unless young people and not so young people join the space workforce and start to do the impossible, which is what's really cool about what's going on right now. It is. And it's going to happen one way or another. I think it's up to individual governments whether or not they are going to be on board or whether they're not. I think the U.S. government has done a really great job of that. For example, I'm pretty sure I saw this week the, an announcement about a, a strategy for settling the moon in outer space. And it's great that they're, they're thinking about that now. Other governments that aren't thinking about that, I think they're going to be left behind. They're going to miss out on a huge chance to build a great economy and also to spread their own cultures in space. So just wrapping up, Chris, talking about Wyvern, because you're a, you're a company founder, you have a business partner, and obviously there's a lot of, you can do. I'm a company founder, so it's a, it is an exciting thing to dream and to bring a team together, motivate a team, develop a team. So what are some of your your bigger ambitions, I would say even personally, what, what, what is Wyvern going to give you a chance to do and what kind of company do you want to create? So first and foremost, I, I want to, I want to work in the space industry and I also want to be able to live in Alberta or for, for that matter in Canada. Personally, I want to be able to do that. I want other people to be able to do that too. So I'm hoping that by building Wyvern that I'm going to be building a larger space ecosystem in Canada and in Alberta. It's really important to me. I really want other people to have that choice because it's it's not something a lot of us have the choice to do now. We've got to go somewhere else. The other thing that is really important to me is I want to be able to contribute to climate change and the fight against it in with the skills that I have. I think that the right way to do that for me and for my team is to do that through space. Being able to measure chemically the entire Earth on a regular basis, that's going to allow us all to have a data set that we can work off of when we're saying, hey, how is Earth today? How was it six months ago? How are we doing? That's an overly simplistic way of saying that, like, it's not a solution to climate change, but I do think it's a step in the right direction. Having everybody working from the same data set can't influence people's actions after that, but I think that this is one of the ways that I can do it. But personally, I want to be part of the push to industrialize space. I think that there's a lot of advantages to doing that. I'd like to see life move to other worlds. I I think it would be just awful if something happened and life went out on Earth. It, it's the rarest thing in the universe so far that we've found. Is, yeah. is, and uh, making sure that it continues to exist is incredibly important to me. I see this as a way of, of me being able to do that. Industrializing low Earth orbit, being able to keep life on Earth alive and then hopefully eventually turning our satellites around and starting to look at other planets other asteroids helping out with that industry that's awesome man well thanks a lot chris it was great to have you on the show uh, a lot of really cool stuff i look forward to following wyvern in 2023 and beyond thank you it was really excited to be here All right. Thanks everyone for listening. You can check out past episodes at explorenewspace.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you very much. Bye now.